from the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Hey everybody, welcome. Episode 132. 132? Wow. It's amazing we've lasted this long. How did we get here? Well, it's because it's not based on ratings. Okay, okay. thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we have the energy to keep producing them, it counts. That's true. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Uh, Jack is a little bit under the weather this evening, um, so we wish him well. And filling in for Jack tonight is our host of Last Resort, Um, or our emergency backup long-term guest, Seth Seth Anthony. Also known as a Masonic Light Podcast original. He is. Yeah. Welcome, Seth. OG podcaster. Good evening, everybody. (laughs) All right, so you know the deal. We'll go to Timmy last, because he's he's the only one that actually gives real stuff here. Um, Larry, what have you been up to lately? Uh, Goose and gridiron, definitely, on the rebound. Um... I presided over Lancaster Forest, Tall Cedars, number 27, my first actual meeting last night, and I thought we did rather well, and we celebrated the birthday of, uh, I almost said Rob Roy, uh, Robert Burns, Burns. poet, Scotland's Poet Laureate, and uh, we had a great, I I can't say we had a good turnout, we didn't have a good turnout, it was a nice turnout, Uh, but we had got, we had a piper there, we had kilts, I mean, it was really an amazing night, and felt really good about that. And our uh, brother... Brian Hill, who you hear at the beginning of the show, he was the, the guest speaker. He was the guest speaker, and his wife had a part as well, and she was better than him. Well, she tolerates a lot of his crap. <laughs> oh, God, yes, yeah, she does. Bless her heart. Good night. And what about you, Brother Josh? What have you been up to? Uh, not really a whole lot. Just uh, dodging a lot of uh, stuff. You're in the past master refractory period, if I remember my health class correct. <laughs> 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 but sooner or later you'll get up again and you'll do something good for Freemasonry it all comes back to you uh, what have I been up to um, I went to the the Valley of Reading last night for a meeting it was kind of strange so I'll have to figure out from uh, Moyer what exactly we did <laughs> so so Seth maybe can enlighten me as a past most wise master Typically, for a stated meeting, all four bodies go up one at a time. They open, they read the bills, they talk about whatever they want to talk about, and then they close. This one, maybe it was because of our active was uh, Mr. Bateman was in town, but we started off with the Lodge of Perfection on stage <coughs> and then the head of the other three bodies on stage. And they opened up their... They didn't even really open. They just kind of opened in the fast way with the grant with the commander. Mm-hmm. Then, I don't know. They called the sovereign princes up. They didn't open because we were already open. They just gave the minutes again. Then we they all got down. Then the next group went up. It was just weird. Is that something normal, Seth? Or is Seth's on a delay. I mean, we've seen it done a. a We've seen it done a bunch of different ways. Um, I, I can't say what's normal and what's not because they've changed it so darn many times. But uh, it sounds like you certainly had a productive meeting full of accomplishments. <laughs> uh, I was explaining it to my wife. I'm like, every time I go, they do something different. It makes it really hard to learn. And her answer was, that just seems like very unmasonic. Isn't the kind of the idea is that you're doing it the same way? I'm guessing that probably 
the, the pomp and circumstance was because Brother Bateman was present, and thus all the heads of all the bodies and all of that. So I'm, I know a lot of times, anytime there are grand officers, or in this case, the active for Pennsylvania uh, present, you know, there's pomp and circumstance that we don't normally have. So. All right. I'm just guessing. Totally spitballing it. So, Brother Seth, you're involved in so many things. What have you been up to lately for uh, Freemasonry? My life uh, is all shrine all the time, as you guys have mentioned on a on a previous episode. I uh, I looked ahead on my calendar and saw that I was not going to be Grand Royal Patron by the end of April. And uh, ignorance abhors a vacuum, and there was a vacuum on my calendar, and I started saying yes to things again, as usual. So uh, back to Shrine work. We were at the mini car uh, Christmas party, which seems a little strange in January, but it was a mini car Christmas party on uh, last Sunday. I did a little cleaning with Pete on Saturday. Uh, Some other meetings thrown in here and there, and looking forward to some more Shrine meetings this weekend. Did those mini cars have snow tires? You know, they don't, but they have four for sale. So if you're looking for an opportunity to, to get involved, <laughs> there you go. The Masonic Light, Light Podcast, Podcast go-kart unit. Go-kart unit. There we go. Man, what could go wrong with that? There you go. <laughs> you know, I, I've I've often said that, uh, you know, Grotto's kind of the, uh, the bizarro version of Shrine or the dark version of Shrine that they should have a, uh, a Mad Max car unit oh, where you just like strap, strap Abe Schaffner to the front <laughs> and drive through a parade. <laughs> I can think of some other nominees. <laughs> Honestly, my, my suggestion for a Grotto unit is it won't cost anybody any money. Anybody that has a, a riding lawnmower. Oh, yes. The lawnmower be, unit. It just be lawnmowers. Yes. And, and, and if you can't afford one, maybe you have to walk behind with a pushing mower. I don't oh, know. There you go. Well, I would love to do that, except I would need somebody to haul the mower to wherever we're going. I would do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> so, Timmy, get out your calendar. What have you been up to? So, actually, I did a quick scan, and since our last episode... Really, my Masonic activities fall into just a couple of buckets. Uh, continuing to help secretaries and treasurers uh, make sense of Grandview. Um, it's actually going quite well uh, for what we can do. Uh, still some gaps that uh, Grand Lodge needs to help us uh, get online. But uh, outside of that, uh, great job by secretaries and treasurers across the state buying in. The second bucket um, is really Grotto. Uh, went to the Grotto meeting last Sunday. Um, it was Brother Jay Laser's first meeting as Monarch. Uh, had a great meal at uh, John Wright's restaurant. Had some wonderful chocolates provided by uh, chocolates by Stephanie or Intermezzo. Intermezzo by Stephanie. Intermezzo there we go. Intermezzo by Stephanie. Intermezzo by Stephanie. Oh, there that worked go. out. Yeah. Well, kind of. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, it was a good meeting. Um, it was great to see everybody. Uh, we were we showed up ahead of time over at uh, a local establishment and smoked a couple cigars, watching a football game, uh, which was great fellowship. And um, what was your third bucket? Um, I forgot. Oh, very well. I guess bourbon. Exactly. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break, and we are going to come back, and we are going to talk to our semi-host, semi-guest. And what was the topic you guys came up with today, Tim? Well, the one I came up with is uh, resurrecting appendant bodies that are dead but don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be back. Why choose George J. Grove and Sons for your next home improvement project? At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. From planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. 
And we're back. Uh, tonight's uh, special guest is uh, certainly no stranger to Masonic Light Podcast. Brother Seth Anthony uh, was an original contributor to this podcast. Uh, go back to episodes one through, I don't know, 30 or 40. And uh, you, you not only get to hear him on the show, but you get to hear Capura Obscurum, which... We could do a whole How list. do you say that, Larry? Oh, something about screw them or something. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on, on on Masonic bodies that Seth has created or resurrected. Yes, we could do. That's true. We could. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's that's a long list. So uh, that that actually kind of ties into tonight's topic. But uh, Brother Seth Anthony, who is the Oriental Guide at Zimbo Shrine in Harrisburg in the uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, is with us tonight. And uh, as we indicated, uh, we're here to talk about Masonic uh, bodies that struggle, and uh, Seth uh, is one who has done a great job of jumping in and helping breathe life back into them, or in some cases, witness a letter I saw today, helps to drive a stake through their heart so they (laughs) go away. Well, So welcome back, Seth. Good evening again, everybody. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk, and I have indeed been involved in the starting of several bodies and the death of several bodies, so I can speak from both sides of the fraternal grave. Get the FBI. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about uh, some of your experiences um, with various bodies, and then I want to get specifically into kind of uh, your assessment of your latest endeavor. Yeah, so you know, the, the there are there are so many fraternal organizations floating around out there, and Pete, then you guys talk about a lot of these on, on the show, and some of them have you know have a great mission and a great purpose, and still have a place in the world today. Uh, some of them, frankly, do not, and they're struggling to figure out what their what their place is and how to survive. And there's been some folks who've been really dedicated to those organizations and hate to see them go. Uh, But in some cases they they've run their course and they need to go. And in other cases, they still got something really valuable to bring to the community. They just need some vision and some leadership. The real trick is figuring out what's worth your time and what's not. Uh, And I think we've all, all been in that boat where we, we, invested some time and effort into something that we thought was worthwhile and it turned out not to be and uh, wished we had invested some time in things that really could have been worthwhile and we just didn't have the the foresight or thought to do it at that point so it's a kind of like playing in the fraternal stock market you know what's worth your time and investment today so as you've worked with all of these organizations um share with us some of the things that as you as you look at those organizations give you at least reason to think, oh, this might be worth jumping into and helping them out if I can. Sounding like Pete, I'll be a little mercenary. Do they have money? (laughs) Step one. (laughs) That helps. If they don't, yeah, you know, seriously, if they don't have some kind of funding or or dollars behind them or an ability to sustain themselves, um, that's really kind of the first thing I look at and say, is there something viable here or or is that ship sailed? And you know, what's the financial situation and that outlook? Uh, I have seen too many lodges, too many Royal Arts chapters, and, and too many of those bodies that are, you know, their whole operating budget is $3,000 a year, and they're charging, you know, $6 a year for dues and paying $700 a year in rent, and they don't understand why they're not viable. Um, you know, just that really basic stuff of having those, those financial controls in place, I, I think, is step one. And then step two is looking around at the leadership that's there. Is there still some leadership within the organization that can kind of teach you the way if you're new to it or or be supportive of new guys coming in and and teach them the way? And I'm immediately thinking of the folks up at Azeem who had some great older past monarchs that were still involved and had kept things going, but were really happy to hand things over to new guys and guide them and give them the leeway. So, you know, is that situation in place is the next step. And lastly, let's be honest, is there a need for whatever the organization is offering uh, in the area that it's in? There there are some places where it makes sense to keep some of those organizations alive and well, and some places where it doesn't. Uh, My commandery was a great example in that it had served 
the western part of Lancaster County for a number of years, and then these amazing things called roads were built, and there was not really a, a need to have two commanderies serving one county and sitting 15 miles apart. So it was time for those two organizations to come together and combine forces and efforts uh, because there was no longer a river and a mountain in between that, that, uh, that needed to divide folks. So it's really taking that full assessment of what's there as the organization and, and how can it be successful and deciding, again, if it's worth your time and investment. So you bring up some points that really could be uh, brought up with many of our own organizations. Uh, when you look around, um, you know, there, there are more small bodies uh, than you can shake a stick at. And, you know, you've got, in some cases, you know, multiple blue lodges within the surrounds of a county or multiple chapters within a whatever area um, and a real reluctance um, unless forced to do so in most cases of trying to have that conversation that you talked about about how, you know do we really need two or five or however many of these uh, in a given area given the fact that we all have automobiles now and there are roads and in most places there's even snow plows that when weather gets inclement can uh, clean the roads for us <laughs> you, you know I've, I've heard i've heard many times folks say you know if, if you close uh yeah you have the two royal arts chapters that have 10 guys coming out and you merge them well you're gonna have one royal arts chapter with only 10 guys coming out and, and i guess the question in my mind is if the challenge is that you've merged these groups and the same number of guys are coming out then is it really uh, that one was stronger than the other, or is there just a weak program at both and they're not really appealing to every, anybody? So blaming mergers on uh, poor attendance and engagement, you know, a merger doesn't fix, or a consolidation doesn't fix a boring program. It doesn't make members engage more. It just brings together the resources. You, if you're going to uh, undertake an event like that, like you've just done with Millersville and Lambert and Lodges, it's not just about merging efforts and membership. You, you've got to come out of that with a solid program and a way forward. Elsewise, you're going to be exactly right back where you were. Well, I, I know one of the things that we did in the formation, say, of like Ubar Grotto, which was, I think one of the, you know, I was not a charter brother. I was the next group in. But the decision that we do not want to own property. and And I see that other same thing here, too, with, being scribed for tall cedars you know we have about 170 men in tall cedars um but it's so much easier to function without that albatross of a building you know at some point if we have too few people coming out and it's just more work than it's worth it but we're not starting off negative like as long as the people pay their dues we have more money coming in than going out Right. Um, same with you know with Grotto, but these places trying to maintain a building is just it's just swimming with a, a rock on your leg. I'll, I'll I'll use my Odd Fellows Lodge as a great example of this, and you know I've certainly put in a lot of time and effort there. You know, there's the old joke about um, a bowling team that it's really a drinking team with a bowling problem. Our our <laughs> little Odd Fellows Lodge is really a rental agency that happens to support a lodge. We've got a great building that's got six apartments in it that's completely rentable and completely functional, but 75% of our meetings are taken up dealing with building issues. What tenants haven't paid their rent, what maintenance needs to be handled on the building, and it leaves very little energy and time for us to do the kind of fraternal thing that we're supposed to do. And I think you see that with a lot of these organizations where the building or whatever piece of property or, or whatever major investments they have take up so much of the energy and time of the leadership that it becomes really hard to be excited and engaging on other topics because you, you, you spend your, your energy dealing with uh, the big albatross, as you say, Pete. And, I mean, I guess we'll mention, <clears throat> you know, three of us here, I don't think, yeah, it's just three of us, I believe, <clears throat> are members of Zembo Shrine. And I was an inactive kind of dues-payer member for years. But what can you share with us about the process of finally making the decision of keeping the building? 
So a little bit of backstory for everybody who's who's listening in and doesn't follow central Pennsylvania news or, or politics. Um, but I think this is applicable and, and worthwhile for folks to hear. So the the building that, that Zembo Shrine sits in was built in the late 1920s. It cost a million dollars to build back then. Wow. It's a quite quite frankly an amazing structure that's built in a Moroccan style. It's one of the uh, I would say few. There's probably more than a few, but not many remaining shrines that's in a uh, that still meets in a one of those 1930s uh, Middle Eastern inspired buildings. But like any building that's now approaching 100 years old, there's 100 year old building problems. Uh, you know, there's there's pipes, there's fixtures, there's internal things. It was not air conditioned when it was built, and quite frankly, large portions of the building were not heated when it was built because it didn't need it back then. Uh, they just didn't use those parts of the building. So now that we're in the modern day, there's a lot of questions around how do we make the building rentable and usable in, in a way that makes sense? How do we continue the upkeep on that? And for several years, they, they thought the best way to handle that was going to be selling the building. And there was three, three times the building was quote unquote sold and people backed out for whatever reason. And now that we're in a place where uh, there's no real offers on the table and the dive-in um, has, has decided not to entertain any additional offers, not saying that, you know, if somebody walked in with, a, with an angel check, they, they wouldn't take a second look. And I'm speaking just broadly as a member there. I think anybody would, would say that. Um, you know, they said that now, now's the time to make a go of the building. And if we're going to do this, let's try to do it right. And to your point, yeah, it, it takes up a lot of time and energy, both on the part of the divan and the part of the office staff, really just to, to manage the building. Um, but it's a building that has incredible history. Jack Kennedy campaigned there in the 60s. Uh, regardless of your political affiliation, Hillary Clinton campaigned there just a few years ago. The WWF used to hold uh, you know, Monday Night Raw in the building. Uh, at, at one point, there was professional basketball played in the building. It, it's an amazing space. But uh, like Pete said, you're starting off in a deficit because you've got this big building to maintain. And the dues of 1,500 Shriners isn't going to maintain you know, a ten, tens of thousands square foot building. It's, it's part of the problem. And, and how many uh, members did Zimbo have at its peak? I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure of the absolute peak number, but what I can tell you in the 1970s, when we're probably very close to the peak, there was more than 10,000 members of Zembo Shrine. Today, we're at about 1,500. You know, since you guys are Lancaster County guys, in the 1970s, there were there were over 2,000 Shriners just in the Lancaster County Shrine Club. Uh, so certainly those days are gone, and many of those organizations are facing it, just like your lodges are facing it, just like your tall cedars are facing it. Um, it's part of the membership decline that we have to deal with. And what is it that you see in particular that uh, led you to say this is this is an organization I want to go invest some time in? And what's that? You mentioned the vision that you wanted to see. What what vision do you see there? So when you think about the Masonic fraternity as a whole, if you go to the average Joe on the street. And you say Freemason, what, maybe one in three, one in five have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, then you, you say Scottish Rite, as much as we all love the Scottish Rite, we're all involved. They kind of blink at you and go, I don't know what that is. And then you say Shriner. And they go, oh, yeah, I know who the Shriners are. They've got hospitals. They're on TV. They've got guys in little cars in parades. So I, I think for me, it, it suddenly clicked last year when I moved into the, the actual city of Harrisburg and became a resident that the shrine in our area and in many areas across the country has been the best public relations tool the fraternity has had. And as a PR and marketing guy, the kind of goodwill and history that you that the shrine has built up, you can't just go buy that. You're not going to buy your way into those good feelings and those history that that history and those memories. So if there's hope for Freemasonry broadly, to bring that message back to the public and engage the public, the shrine certainly offers the the path of least resistance to engaging those folks because they already know who they are broadly. They already know they've got a great mission in the hospitals. So it's much easier to be recognized and engage the general public as a shrine mason than it is as a Scottish Rite mason or a tall cedar or many of these other groups. 
so in, it, for me, the time and investment and worth worth it piece of this is to harness the public relations piece that the shrine offers and say, not only do we, how do we build the shrine membership back, because I think there's something worthwhile there, but how do we use that more broadly to boost our fraternity and, and piggyback off the work that's been done by the previous generations to, to bring about that public recognition? Well, I think you've always been an advocate of, you know, the, the rising tide raises a floats all boats or whatever the oh, yeah. saying is. Um, there's still a huge part of the of Freemasonry that's assume that when you join something, oh, you're just taking away from your blue lodge. And, you know, we're on the same page here. But, but you and I both have had this discussion with folks that, you know, if you're active in your shrine or your grotto or Scottish Rite, the chances of you going non-payment of dues in your Blue Lodge are very slim. And I think it helps everything to be involved in something. Uh, absolutely. And maybe this is one of those things that Tim and his uh, infinite access to Grandview someday can, can figure out. I said that jestingly, <laughs> Tim. Um, but, but, you know, and, and I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, if you look back and see all the guys that are suspended from Blue Lodge in a year, how many of those guys were active or dues-paying in a body beyond Blue Lodge? And, and I'm going to guess the vast majority of them were not. Uh, so, you know, whether you <clears throat> think that those organizations are taking guys away from your Blue Lodge, quote-unquote, or they're not being active, is it, a different story because there's plenty of those guys who, if they're engaged well in those in those other bodies— and meet guys from their Blue Lodge that maybe they hadn't interacted with may come back to the Blue Lodge and get involved and in, in, in do that. And I'm a great example of that. You know, I, I was in DMLA, I joined Blue Lodge, I did lots of things, but I was commander of my commandery, I was division commander, I was all the York Rite stuff, and I was in line in Scottish Rite before I was master. But I still did my term as master and, and still went through the chairs in Blue Lodge because I, I saw the value in that. So it's an opportunity to re-engage those members who might not initially... Uh, see Blue Lodge as the thing that really excites them, but if we can keep them excited and happy in one part of the fraternity, it offers an opportunity to get them back and involved in Blue Lodge in, in a way that they might not have ever been involved before if that's all they ever saw, and it just wasn't the thing for them. One of the things that, at least anecdotally, I have observed among successful Blue Lodges is that even though um, you know the the landmarks and the ritual and things like that don't change, um, appealing to different generations has to change because the reasons people join organizations, whether it be the Freemasonry in general or the Shrine or any other appended body, um, we we have to adapt to a world that is very different than the 1930s and 40s and even into the 60s and 70s that you mentioned when most of our organizations were at their heyday. Um, and I think that's something we've struggled with across the board, but at least anecdotally within Blue Lodges, I think some of the more successful ones are those lodges that have appealed to younger guys in ways that perhaps some of the other ones haven't yet. And I, I'm just curious as to whether you see that in Shrine or any other appendant body that you might be a part of. Well, well, certainly in Shrine, we're having that discussion broadly, I think, as an organization nationally and even locally at Zembo. What, what activities uh, and things to offer are going to be of interest? Uh, I sat in on a, uh, uh, a webinar that the that Imperial Shrine, Shriners International, did. Uh, where it was talking about how to engage members. And it was a half an hour webinar, very well presented by their executive staff. Uh, shout out to Jody McGuire, who's a member of Dean Lay International with me, who's the, a membership director for, for Shrine. And, and the thing they said that really struck home with me and positioned Shrine uniquely was, unlike many Masonic bodies, the Shrine exists only to serve the interest of the members. The, the Shrine is not there to confer for degrees. That, that's really not what it's built for. The, the shrine is not there to perpetuate some ancient history or, or special secret. The shrine is there to make sure their members are having fun or engaged in Freemasonry. And whatever form that needs to take, the shrine should do that. 
So if that form is a, a pitmaster's barbecue club, great. If that form uh, is a is a distillery unit uh, that's going to do distilling and go out to and find interesting spirits, fantastic. If that unit's board games or video games or whatever, open it and do it. And it, it doesn't have to be this giant production. Find the five guys that want to do that thing, give them a club and let them do it. And that's how you start to rebuild and re-engage your members. It doesn't have to be this onerous process of, of you know, bylaws and making them efficient. And I, I certainly, Tim, I know you're going through that with actually creating bylaws for a, a club now. Uh, and, and this is really just us learning our way through this process again because we haven't done it in so long. But the really successful shrines right now are the ones who are very nimble in responding to whatever the interests of their members are. And that comes back to sort of the topic that at hand of, uh, there are units that are going to die and, and clubs that are going to die. There's organizations within the shrine that there's just not interest in anymore. You know, Oriental bands aren't as popular as what they used to be. Not saying they aren't out there, uh, but they're just they're just not as popular. And perhaps their time the term is Asian American. Okay. Okay. Please. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Pete. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the unique positioning the shrine has in, in all of that and, and finding ways to interact with their members and, and do stuff. Um, and, and not to turn the, the, the tides here, but I'd be really curious. I, I'll interview the interviewers, and we've talked about this investment piece and you know why we spend the time in the bodies we spend the time in. You know, Pete, what was it about Tall Cedars, which is an organization that's struggling in a lot of parts of the country, that you said, "Hey, this is an organization I want to invest some time and effort." In? I I guess I just like abuse. Um, <laughs> I uh, personally, I, I have a hard time when I see somebody doing something poorly that I could do adequately with minimal effort. Doesn't mean I can do be the most amazing leader there ever was, but it just it 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 gives me the chills when I see people do something so poorly and put zero effort into it. Um, and then they bring me in to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, you know, the Cedars, well, let's go, like, the charity is direct. The money goes directly to the, the charity, um, does not pass go. It's not, there's not, like, a lot of layers of red tape there with, like, with some charities. Um, my... All these groups would be do much better if they could figure out what their lane is and figure out how to stay in their lane and not duplicate the other people. So for Cedars, the wives are the wives can go to dinner with you. And that <clears throat> with me being out of the house five or six nights a month, it's nice once a month to be able to invite my wife. It might not be the you know, it's a twenty dollar dinner. I'm not taking her to Lebec Finn, but it makes her feel like part of the us as part of the overall Masonic community, which she never felt like before Cedars. Let's yeah, uh, half the uh, half the attendees last night were women. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break. Uh, our sponsors are knocking at the door, wanting to get their stuff in. We'll come back and talk more about uh, Tall Cedars. We'll talk more with our guest Seth Anthony. I'm gonna go pee. Okay. As far back as the mid-1800s, records exist describing the pre-meaning tradition of brethren smoking cigars during and after gatherings. To this day, the practice of smoking cigars remains very much alive in many lodges. This custom is considered a time for brethren to relax, exchange ideas, and enjoy the simplicity and fellowship that is the very essence of our brotherhood. This is what Hireman Solomon Cigars is all about. Our starting principles are to bring Masonic brethren together in the harmony of a good cigar. Pull up a chair, sit back, light up any of our premium cigars, and enjoy the history. Hireman Solomon Cigars can be found at fine cigar retailers. For a complete list, visit HiremanSolomonCigars.com or check them out on social media to find out when they'll be at a live event near you. Hireman Solomon Cigars is pleased to be the official cigar of the Masonic Light Podcast. 
And we're back with our guest, Seth Anthony. Uh, Seth uh, has been engaging us in a conversation around uh, organizations and um, how we strengthen them uh, when possible. Uh, but uh, as all tough uh, end-of-life discussions are, uh, how do we approach those organizations that uh, we just need to kind of say last rites over and remember do, them? Do, do you guys have power of attorney over Larry, just in case? I wanted to check. Yeah. <laughs> or at least we have access to it. Okay, very good. Now, you know, as I was sharing kind of on the break with with, with folks, at, at some point you 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 have to individually what determine as a mason as a member of these groups how much time and energy and money you're willing to invest and, and what kind of return you expect out of that investment, and that's kind of a a business decision in a way. But it's the, the question you have to ask yourself, because at some point you can't just keep dumping money into an organization, your own hard-earned money, and your time and energy and not feel like you're getting anything out of it. And, and I shared, uh, I had a conversation with a grand secretary in a fraternal body I'm involved with, and they were hoping and kind of indicating they'd like me to do some more. And I was very honest with them and said, I don't see, I don't see that return on investment. If I'm going to put more time and energy and money into this, I don't see that the organization is set up for success from the top down, and, and I don't see that my my individual efforts are going to make the kind of impact I'd want if I'm going to expend that time and energy. And, and that's a hard conversation to have with somebody who's a grand secretary who loves the organization they're working with, um, you know, because they've put so much time and energy, and then you get into the idea of a sunk cost where they go, well, I've, I've put in you know a decade of my life. I can't just walk away from this now. I, don't blame them for that but it's hard to get me to say okay i'm willing to give it a decade um, after seeing the results you've gotten over the last decade of putting in that kind of time and energy and, and that's part of the the conversation you have to have as a body is you know failing or having trouble is understanding and asking yourself where's the where's the break point where, where do we have to have that conversation and say how do we end this? And this is where I, I'm curious as to Josh and Larry's thoughts on, you know, how did that conversation come about with your lodge that recently had to merge? And how did you approach that? I know it wasn't just a, a once and done, hey, it's Thursday night, nobody's on the sidelines, time to merge. Um, it, it's a process. So so how did you, how did you come to that? Uh, well, it was a long process. Um, it started literally, uh, actually, about two, two and a half years ago with talk about it. And that led to a lot of uh, serious acrimony from certain bodies within the center that we were located at. And uh, so it kind of stopped. But I think we as a lodge, and I think Josh can confirm this as his two years being Worshipful Master, we're seeing a lot of... Uh, I'm watching the, fi the finger singles here. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of things happening that weren't good for the success of a continuation of a lodge. And I think at the same time, the Millersville uh, uh, Charles Howell Lodge was, was seeing the same thing. I think they, they mentioned that they thought they wouldn't be able to survive for another year. And we consequently, everybody got their heads together and started seriously talking about it. But I think both lodges were in a downward spiral. Both lodges had some significant investments, which were monetarily, we were sound. Uh, but we were losing it from the leadership aspect and from the being able to man chairs aspect. And that was, that was very disconcerting for a lot of people. So we began earnest discussions. And uh, it, it turned out that the merger worked out very, very well so far. But you're right, Seth, in order for it to be a good merger, we've got a lot to do in this year and next year in order to continue. We've, we've got to be able to uh, do so much. And so basically, it's like we're under a magnifying glass with Grand Lodge. They're watching everything we're doing to make sure we're successful. And there's a lot we have to do. So it's, it's not an easy road. It really is not. I think we were fortunate in the fact that we had two bodies, two blue lodges that really liked each other, worked well together previously, 
and the merger was was really sort of fantastic. It was great to work with uh, everybody, and that helped make it easy. It was a, it was a model merger. Uh, so I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but Josh. Yeah, I was going to say I'd be curious, Josh, as an incoming Marshall Master, who not only is being faced with COVID and uh, edicts that we have to close and. Um, the history that you both lived and observed within that lodge prior to all of this, I'd be curious as to your thoughts. So, like like Larry said, um, the ho- the whole merger thing was kind of a discussion that was going on like in the sidelines, not really an official thing uh, between different people. Um, for for several years i mean it's probably at least three or four years that that i know of that people have actually been you know talking about it and you know i think a lot of that comes from you know the recognition that you know both of our lodges had had issues and there was like a core group of people that were kind of all doing doing the work and working together and enjoying working together that we kind of realized that you know, there there was an opportunity with with us merging with Charles M. Howe, and um, I, I think a lot of a lot of the things that that Lamberton had as issues, um, I think w- with the merger and us being in Millersville, I think um, some of those some of those barriers to things that we kind of wanted to do, I think, are going to be um, gone. So. Uh, yeah, and to, to be honest, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. We were part of a uh, Masonic Center system that, and today when you look at it, is it, uh, I want to choose the right word so I don't offend too many people I already have anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, uh, part of a system of, of maintaining an old building that requires a lot of upkeep and you, you like... Masonic centers throughout the United States, it's a big problem. Do you want to continue to sink money into something well, something similar to what we talk about with Zembo? Well, not, e- not even just that. I mean, this guy, back, getting it back to Seth's point a little bit, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's a small lodge, and like, like Lamberton or Charles M. Howe, you can have those organic discussions on the sideline and maybe get something done. But... If you're not seeing if you're not seeing the value, let's say in Scottish Rite, or you're not seeing the value in Shrine, and you're just this member, and you see this big world, this big machine ahead of you that you can't turn around, and that's kind of what we felt like with the center was there is just too many balls in the air for us to go in here and affect change. So a lot of these people just their answer is. Paying dues and not coming out, and then eventually, not paying dues and not coming out. Um, on, on some rare occasions in these smaller groups, maybe you can get a motivated group of officers that want to come in and make some hard decisions and try and change things. But it's so much easier just to flow with the current, and and it's hard it, unless the people upstream like your grand secretary of that other organization is helping give you directions of which way this current needs to flow and if they're not giving you the direction and just hoping for you to do better it's a let me be smart a sisyphean task there you go that's a big word for pete that's a big word you You know i think that the the I think the key thing here that 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 three or four year process that they talked about um, is is something that uh, that occurs that maybe people don't even realize is occurring is that's a three or four year mourning process. Right. So everybody kind of has to come to grips with the idea like my lodge isn't going to exist anymore. And for somebody who's been initiated and a member of that lodge for 40 years, the idea of this thing that they've always known not existing is is really hard, and, and you have to have that kind of mourning period in time for people to process and then become invested in the new thing. Um, it's not just a matter of saying we're going to take away your old your old toy. Here's your we, we took away your old teddy bear and here's your new one. 
you, you have to give folks the, the time to process and come to terms with that. So you know, the death of these bodies often gets strung out, quite honestly, because we have to give people the time to mourn and come to grips with things. And, and I think that's where we see so many of these little bodies that that continue to struggle along because there's people still mourning it and they, they don't see the way forward. I also think we were unique in the fact that and and working on the merger committee myself, I, I just thought there'd be a lot more resistance to the merger, but I came to find out at every meeting that there was not. And in most cases, every time we had votes, it was near unanimous. Only on one occasion did we have one person vote against it. There was one no in two lodges. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it was it was incredible. And the amount of past masters who showed up for some of those meetings, I mean, as, as chairman of that committee, I just felt, oh, God, we're going to get it. Something's going to happen. And it never happened because it came to, came to pass that the past masters were all for it. It was it was uh, it was an eye-opening experience in that respect. One of the things I think you guys have an opportunity for, and and Seth, um, you may want to speak to this um, when you're trying to come into a, a, an organization that has struggled, uh, or in in the situation of a large merger, a chance to kind of write a new story. Um, strategic planning really can play a critical role and making sure that the people that exist beyond the current whoever the head of the body is is bought in so that you're not constantly changing year after year or every two years or whatever the case may be. Uh, Seth, uh, can you talk a little bit about any strategic planning that you've actually either engaged in or seen organizations engage in? Yeah, so I think I immediately think back to when we started Grotto. So, you know, we're, we're talking about the death of organizations, and, and I'm sort of thinking back to the, the beginnings uh, of writing that new story, like you said. And, and it, it's one thing to sit around and say, hey, we should have a new a new club, a new Masonic body, and, and decide to charter that. And, and you can certainly make that happen. People will support you. But if there's no vision for that or no strategic plan, to, to Tim's point, um, at some point, that, that initial excitement and fire of, I've got a new thing, a new shiny toy to play with, is going to wear off. And I think, to, to a certain extent, we've even seen this with Ubar Grotto, where, you know, you get to years seven, eight, and nine after having started. It's like, oh, you know, are, are we getting into a rut? Are we, are we not doing new and interesting things coming out off of that initial excitement? And with Ubar, we had a pretty strategic plan of what we thought we were going to do. The, the idea was that we would only really meet as an entire organization a couple times a year with the convivials and have dinner, and that it, it, the officers would meet the rest of the year and get things done. But as we, we got into meeting and doing things, everybody started showing up to every meeting. And then we had to change our strategic plan of, oh, there's a different... The, the need that we thought was here is here. It's just taking a different form than what we had planned. And we had to pivot and meet that, that new need. So th there was a, a, a very thoughtful plan of how we were going to operate and take this. And, you know, to Pete's point earlier about not having a building, that was very much in the zeitgeist at that point. There, there was discussions around, you know, how often we should meet, what we should meet about, how often do we do ceremonials, what should our point be. Um, and, you know, that's all exciting stuff, but at some point you're, you have to sit down and have that strategic plan and think about where's this going to be. And we've all experienced leaders uh, that vary wildly where they say, oh, yeah, the, the whole team is on board with this. I've talked to the whole administration. This is the five-year plan. We're all, we're all on board. And then two leaders down the road, that guy wasn't as on board as we thought he was, and he takes a hard right turn. Well, what does that do to your strategic plan? So it, it's having those frank discussions you know, at the beginning and at the end, to say, here's the strategy of where we see, see us going, uh, whether it's continuing, whether it's a new strategic plan, whether it's merging, uh, you have to have those conversations. I think you raised, you went back to a very critical point when you talked about the organization adapted and moved to where you saw the membership desire moving to. Uh, when people started just showing up to Grotto, 
And it was like, oh, wait, they want to get together more often than quarterly or semi-annually. They really want to get together regularly here and have some fun. And I think had had you not done that, I think it might have fallen on its face. Well, it could have, yeah, you could have put accidentally put the brakes on it. Right. Yeah, it's it's meeting that need for the membership, and you know we what we what we set out to do is what we did. It just didn't take the form that we had initially thought it would take, and and I think that's where some of these bodies struggle is. Um, the idea of what they set out to do is so locked into the routine in which they, they do it that it's really hard to envision how do we accomplish the mission but with a different set of tactics to, to roll into that. And that's, that's not a criticism of, of anybody in particular. I see, it, I see it happening in community organizations uh, out there much beyond the fraternity of, well, this is the way, you know, it, God forbid, this is the way we've always done stuff, so it has to be done this way. Uh, well, that's not a, a fraternal problem. That's an everybody problem. Well, being being an organization that's only 11, 10 years old, um, we're not mired down in as much dogma and as much tradition. And like with our Ubar Grotto, what I've seen is we have somehow, to to maintain a good year, you have to watch this sweet spot of what to do and what not to do. Because I've seen a couple monarchs dial it way back and barely do anything, and the, and the membership hate that. And then I've also seen the, the, uh, the, the guys in charge try to add more things. Like, like Jay Laser this year, bless his heart, he's been planning this for a long time. He has all these activities. You're going to have a hard time. These guys, all they really want to do in Ubar is get off the couch one day a month yeah. <laughs> for a couple hours and they eat and drink with their friends. Yep, yep. And if you try to have a a bowling night outside of that, if you try to have a trash pickup, not it's just not going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that that's not going to change someday, but you really got to be able to read the room. And I see a lot of people in Masonic organizations that are not good at reading, you know, the temperature of where this organization is now and what they're willing to do or not to do. Well, and we've had this conversation before where we go to a meeting and it's just, it's like the the, uh, the big salad bowl of the same guys that you see at Scottish Rite, that you see at this group, that you see at this group. But we wear jeans and we drink. But we wear jeans and we drink in Grotto. <laughs> Uh, and not to say that Grotto is a drinking club by any stretch of the imagination. No, but, it's not. But um, in any case, I think that's 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 but very good. To, to that to that point, Tim, I think the the thing here that that sets Grotto apart, and I think sets any of these successful organizations apart, is at least in the case of Ubar, it does a really good job. What the? Apparently, what I'm the? getting played off. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. All right, I guess I'm done. Have a nice day. This is Pete. There's some chickens. Time to go. <laughs> I think that's Josh indicating to us that Sorry. we need to wrap it up. No, no. Yeah, it is. I moved it. I moved he moved it. it. Okay. Well, we, we can so edit I, this. What, what was, go ahead, Seth. What I, what I was going to say for that last point, we'll call that the last point, I guess is that what, what Grotto has successfully done is gotten guys who are involved in Scottish Rite, involved in Shrine, involved in their Blue Lodges to come together um, and do that thing one night a month because that's the, the investment they're willing to make. And the successful organizations, the successful attendant bodies, are able to reach across those multiple lines and get guys involved uh, beyond, beyond being the same 10 guys in the same, in the same 10 things. And, and Grotto is a great example of an organization that's figured out that secret sauce, at least locally here, of how do I get guys from all of these different bodies, from Cedars, from Shrine, from Scottish Rite. This is a place where they all sort of come together, and it's Masonic Switzerland where they all get along uh, and, and don't necessarily try to recruit the heck out of each other one night a month. Well, let's take uh, one more break. We'll come back, and we'll wrap up tonight's episode. <laughs> Hello, brethren. Dutchy Duck is back with an update from my lodge, the Broken Plaw number 377. Oh my god, can you believe that we are now in the year 2022? I didn't think numbers could go that high. <laughs> 
For all of you out there that are Pennsylvania Masons, you know that our new Right Worshipful Grand Master, who was just installed, is the Right Worshipful Brother Jeffrey M. Wonderling. Now this brooder has some brand new ideas to help spread the knowledge of Freemasonry throughout the Commonwealth. One of his new initiatives is to hold town hall meetings throughout the state. At these town hall meetings, brethren are invited to meet the Grand Officers and discuss the state of the craft. As mentioned on the Grand Lodge's website, these town halls are meant to provide an overview of current topics within the fraternity and to offer time for questions and answers. Now doesn't that sound something wonderful? Guess what brothers? Our Lodge, the Brogan Plough, was for whatever reason chosen to host one of these town halls. Boy were we surprised. As soon as we got noticed that we were one of these locations, a committee was quickly formed to plan out the event. Of course the big question was, what would we serve all these visiting people to eat? We saw this as an opportunity to display our unique Pennsylvania Dutch culinary culture. We were also asked to plan some activities for the ladies who might be accompanying their husbands or significant others to our little valley. My wife quickly suggested that we offer quilting circles and an apple butter cooking demonstration. Her thought, who doesn't love a nice quilt and some warm latwarik to schmear on your bread? Plus, we can put these fine ladies to work. As we say in Pennsylvania Dutch, ash die arbeit, dan die lust. First the work, then the play. Our committee really put their collective heads together for the meal portion. It was decided that if non-Pennsylvania Dutch brethren were coming, we had to roll out the culinary red carpet. Each culture has a signature dish that truly represents who they are and where they come from. For us Pennsylvania Dutch, that dish is Saimoa. Now if you live in southeastern Pennsylvania, you might know just what Saimoa is. Sometimes it's also called Hawkmaw. But for those uninitiated brethren out there, Saimaw is stuffed pig's stomach, a delicacy fit for a king. If you've never enjoyed our gastronomical treat, let me explain just what Saimaw is. You take a clean pig's stomach, sew one of the ends shut. Now remember, a stomach has two ends, the in and the out, right? Then mix together diced potatoes, celery, carrots, onions, smoked and fresh sausage, salt, pepper, and parsley. Proceed to stuff those ingredients into the stomach and sew the other end shut. To cook Saimoa, take the stuffed stomach and boil for about two hours. When done, brown the stomach in butter in a good old cast iron frying pan. This dish truly is a labor of love. Once brown, slice that bad boy up and dig in. Now we Pennsylvania Dutch are damn proud of this dish because it truly speaks to our culture. We have been snot to tail eaters since before time immemorial. No part of any animal should ever go to waste. And on top of all that, it is just as we say, ari appetitly, very delicious. According to Grand Lodge, people did not have to RSVP for the town hall, so we truly had no idea how many stomachs to prepare. We estimated high and decided to make 15. <laughs> Finally, the day of the town hall came. All morning, our brethren cut, diced, chopped, sewed, and stuffed those swine innards. Our social hall kitchen smelled like heaven. The town hall itself went off without a hitch, and there were no controversial questions asked to the grandmaster. He closed the meeting and invited all in attendance to retire and to enjoy good food and fellowship. Now was our time to shine. We quickly put the stomachs on display and started to carve them up. As brethren formed a line, many looked on with bewilderment. Some asked, what in the world were we serving? I proudly exclaimed, Saimawa, stuffed pig stomach. Some men immediately got out of the line and left. Others who were more curious came and took a closer look. One brother looked, sniffed, and started to gag. <laughs> Your broken plot brothers could not understand why people were reacting this way. The Grand Master, who is from the other side of the Susquehanna, also politely nodded no and went right for the shoe fly pie. At the end of the day, only five brave souls ate our delicious pig stomachs. I guess in the end it all worked out. Each broken plot member was able to take a stomach home for his family. Talk about a good takeout order. 
The Grandmaster thanked us for hosting and quietly said in my ear as he was leaving, Next time, serve something normal. I thought to myself, normal? That's what I thought we did tonight. Yeah, well, so Gates. Till next time, work hard, stay plumb, and out in the lights when you leave the room. To learn more about the Pennsylvania Dutch language, culture, and history, please visit my website, padutch101.com, or my YouTube channel. Just search Doug Nameford. And we're back. Uh, we want to thank our uh, guest, Seth Anthony, for being with us tonight. Uh, great discussion. Uh, maybe went a little long, but uh, it was uh, engaging. And uh, we want to thank you, Seth, for being with us tonight. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Absolutely. So uh, why don't you tell us, Seth, what you've got coming up uh, in the next few weeks Masonically? Uh, let me tell you, it's going to be an exciting Masonic weekend for me. Uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night, I'm looking forward to being with the Franklin County Shrine Club in Waynesboro for their oyster feed. Mm. Uh, uh, this, this should be an exciting... I guess Larry's not going to the oyster feed. Do they have any waterways <laughs> down in uh, Waynesboro? <laughs> you know, Waynesboro, yeah, Waynesboro is not known for being along any shoreline, so I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it will be excellent. The Franklin <clears throat> County guys do great work. Uh, Friday night, I'll be with back in effort to lodge for an AMD powwow. And then uh, on Sunday, uh, I believe we're back to doing some some trine work and some other things uh, around the temple and, and working with our potentate. So uh, a big weekend. And then Sunday night we have uh, AMD again for another meeting. So it's an AMD weekend in a lot of ways for me. All right, Pete. How about you? I think I'm pretty much done for the end of January. It'll all start up again uh, this week. Um, I have my Worshipful Master on a uh, one-month suspension currently. Um, every time he would include me into a uh, group text message, I told him I will miss a meeting. So um, I will be back uh, at... Who am I going who, who to sit with? Well, see if me. you can... You can sit with me at a bar. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm too crazy right now. So for the guys that don't notice, my foster dog had twelve puppies, and uh, it's it's just like a baby human. You spend your whole day running around making sure that they don't die. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm weighing these things twice a day to make sure they're gaining weight. Every once in a while, I hear a squeal just because mom just pop plopped down and laid on all of them. <laughs> Um, you know, she jumped the fence earlier today to attack my male Doberman just because she's a raging hormonal machine. I was going to say, isn't that how she got in this mess to begin with? Well, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's unleaded. So, okay. yeah. But anyway, that's it. I'm just yeah. going to try and get some sleep. Yeah, we need to do an episode on your work with the uh, Doberman rescue in the future. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Josh, how about you? Uh, not really too much. I guess we got uh, lamp. Uh, yeah, Millersville. Yeah. Millersville. Millersville Lodge number four hundred seventy six uh, stated meeting coming up. Um, I guess we're going to be doing some degrees after the stated. And uh, yes, we are. Although I'm giving notice, I will not stay for those. I'm leaving after the meeting. I may or may not be leaving as well. <laughs> oh come on. Uh. Anyway, uh, I think that's about it. Honestly. Goose and gridiron here in stated meeting. That's pretty much it for me for the rest of the couple weeks. So I understand you guys are having an incredible presenter at your upcoming stated meeting. Oh, yes, we, we are. We, some guy from the other side of the river or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Tim Dedman's coming to our stated meeting. He's our featured guest speaker. I want to be rich. Oh. Exactly. And guess what he's going to talk about? Oh, Whoa. Yeah, well, about the only thing I talk about anymore. 
Uh, no, I will be uh, be looking forward to uh, joining uh, with Millersville Lodge at their stated meeting in February to talk about Grandview and the members' access to this. Yes, we and, sp- I, and actually, Tim, there are people that are really looking forward to you being there. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, my lodge is always the guinea pig uh, whenever mm-hmm. I do something like this. So I'll, I did it with uh, them last month, and actually had a lot of guys who not only came up afterwards and. We're very well pleased, but also have followed up and got online and gotten signed in and are getting, you know, updating their profiles and updating their own stuff. So uh, look forward to being with you guys. I know at uh, dinner last month, we had people from Millersville Lodge with there. You can pay your dues online. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago. You know, the good news is every Pennsylvania Mason will be able to pay their dues online. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be exactly. awesome. Uh, Eureka West Shore Lodge, number 302 in Mechanicsburg, will be having their stated meeting on the 7th of this month. Um, Brother Bill Britton will be coming to talk about the Academy of Masonic Knowledge and the Lodge of Research. Uh, looking forward to that presentation. And then um, late in that second week, at least a couple of us are going to be down at Masonic Week in uh, Alexandria uh, at the Hyatt Regency at Crystal City. Uh, so if you are going to be at that event, make sure you look us up. Uh, we are probably going to have a table down in the main area um last year pete and i went and had a great time so uh looking forward to seeing everybody down at that so with that larry uh you ready to take us home yeah absolutely. all right josh get some chickens rounded up here special thanks to effort lodge 665 for making this broadcast studio possible Notice how good my voice is with that iced tea? Yes. Oh, my God. This Great is for, with a lot of lemon in there. Thanks to Josh Lamberton, our producer and director, who continues to make the show listenable. Thanks to Jack Carley, our news director. He's not here tonight. No. Is he going to have a new spot? Walter may call in. Oh, God. Shit. Tim Detman, our marketing director. Masonic Light Podcast contributor is Michelle Snyder. Uh-oh. Michelle Snyder and Doug Maddenford. And I just want to leave you with one final thought. Uh-oh. Truth hurts. Truth hurts, okay? Maybe not as jumping... Oh, shoot. Truth hurts. Maybe not as much as jumping on a bicycle with a seat missing, but it does hurt. That's all I have. This is Larry Maris. Thanks for listening. Hey, La- hey, Larry. Do you know what my North Korean... I asked my North Korean Mason friend how he likes things over there. Yeah. You know what he said? What? I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tim. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Oh.